Amen. Thank you, uh, choir musicians, and thank you all for joining with us on this uh, Independence Day week. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our series uh, through the book of Galatians, and we're getting close uh, to the end. I think we only have two more sermons um, after that, and um, I'm praying and thinking through what we'll what will kick off in the fall, uh, but this has been really helpful for me, and I hope it's been really helpful for you to dig into this book and to see uh, what the Spirit is saying to the churches through the words of the Apostle Paul. Um, and so, as we continue this morning uh, through the book of Galatians, let me uh, open us with a word of prayer, and we'll we'll dive right in. Lord, I thank you for... This morning, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the kindness that you've lavished upon us in so many ways, Lord, which we don't deserve. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we continue to contemplate the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, I pray that we as your people, Lord, would, would grow, that your fruit would grow in us by the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives, that it would be evident to all that we are a people who have been changed by the power and the Spirit of God. And so we pray that you would work this morning and have your way in us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, um, we've been going through the book of Galatians and, you know, Paul is making this a very long and important argument about how uh, we are saved by grace through faith, not because of anything that we could do, but because of the grace of God and sending Jesus Christ for us. So uh, contrary to what some of these false teachers were teaching, we don't have to become a Jew first to become a Christian. Our right standing before God does not come from our keeping of the law, but it comes through faith in Jesus Christ who kept the law for us, who died the death that we deserve to die, that we should die, and who rose from the dead on our behalf, conquering the penalty for sin, so that if when we believe in Christ, we are forgiven of our sins, we are dwelt, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, which changes us from the inside out, so we love and serve God, not to be saved, but because we have been saved. And the Bible says that the Spirit grows fruit in us, fruit in our lives. And as I talked about last week, spiritual life is organic. It's not mechanical. Uh, when you put an acorn in the ground, it takes a really, really long time for things to happen, but over 20, 40, 50, 100, 200, 300 years. You have an immovable oak. And that's what spiritual life is. God bears fruit in our lives by the Spirit as we grow in Him. And so this fruit in our life, you know, if I take some apples and, and, and tie them to an orange tree, it's evident to all that those don't belong. You can try to append fruit to your life, but it's not spiritual fruit. God wants to... God, God, doesn't, God doesn't want merely our behaviors to change. He wants who we are to change. Because 
when God changes the, the, the nature of what kind of tree you are, then it changes your fruit. And so this is what God is after. And so uh, we're going to look. We talk, last week we talked about the fruit of love, the fruit of love. And this morning we're going to talk about the rest of the spiritual fruit that Paul lists um, in Galatians 5 here. Um, but if you're able and willing, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going, to, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And again, for context, we're going to start in verse 16. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions... Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, uh, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. With its passions and desires. The word of God. You may be seated. So there's two things we're going to see today. We're going to see that we need to bear new fruit and kill the old root. Bear new fruit and kill the old root. First, bear new fruit. We're going to be talking about the remainder of the fruit of the Spirit that you can see in verse 22 and 23 of Galatians chapter 5. The first one, we talked about love last week. So this morning, we're going to start with joy. So the thing you have to keep in mind when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit is that these things are worked in our lives by the Spirit. In other words, they're not just things that you do. They're not just things that God is just telling you, you know, it's like a Christian to-do list. That, that would be misreading this text. What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit works these things in your life because they're supernatural. There's supernatural fruit that God bears in your life as you walk by the Spirit in the fellowship with God. And so joy, and, and joy is one of the more evident ones that this is true. Joy is a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. Now it's important that we understand the nature of Christian joy because I think many people misunderstand it. When, when Paul says, uh, rejoice always... And when Paul commands us, rejoice in the Lord, what he's talking about is not some kind of glib happiness or some kind of naive or or superficial gladness or superficial happiness, okay? That's not what he's talking about because some people, I think, read that and they misunderstand that and think, well, you know, that's, that's kind of silly. That's kind of naive. That's not... You know, how can someone just be happy all the time? Is that what, is that what Christianity means? Well, no, that's not what Christian joy is. Christian joy is not a glib happiness, but it's a, it's a deep and abiding joy that rests in the depths of your soul because in Christ you have an indestructible hope. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8 through 10, Paul says this, We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. You see what Paul's talking about? He's clearly not talking about a life of just superficial happiness because Paul, everywhere he went, was chased by mobs. He was stoned. He was attacked. He was threatened. He, he suffered, from what we can tell, some kind of serious physical ailment that wouldn't go away. So Paul is not advocating some, for some kind of superficial happiness. And yet, in the midst of all his pain, Paul is able to say that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How's that possible? Well, it's possible because uh, uh, sorry terrors for the, sorrow tarries for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That is that Paul understood very keenly that this world is, that our days are few and fleeting, that this world is quickly passing away, and on the other side, if you have hoped in Christ, there will be no more tears or crying or pain or any more, for the former things will have passed away. That's what the Bible says. And so Paul can very truly and very legitimately be sorrowful yet always rejoicing because no matter how much sorrow we're facing in this world, we have a hope that can never be taken away. A hope in Jesus Christ that's so sure and so unshakable and so indestructible that no matter what comes at you, it doesn't matter. The worst thing, the worst thing that can happen to you is you die and you go and be with the Lord. And Paul says that's far better. We see this also in Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for, for you all, making my prayer with joy. So in Philippians, Paul is praying, and he says he's praying for the Philippians, and he's praying for them with joy. You know where Paul is when he's writing the letter to Philippians? He's in prison. Paul's joyful. In prison. How's that possible? Because Paul's joy was not governed by his external circumstances. You see, you only lose your joy and you're only devastated and you only, you only give in to despair when, what, when you lose what you love the most. But here is the thing for Paul. He didn't love his freedom the most. So when he lost his freedom in jail, he didn't lose his joy because he wasn't infatuated with his freedom. What did Paul love the most? He loved God the most. And no one could take away his God. He loved the people of God the most. He loved, he loved serving the people of God and seeing them grow in their walk with the Lord. And in fact, in, in, Paul writes, that he says that, um, that my imprisonment has actually served to, uh, to grow the gospel. For the gospel to get out. He's had the opportunity to share the gospel with his guards and other people who saw Paul being in prison, became more bold to share their faith because Paul was bold enough to share his faith even to the point of going in prison. And so Paul says that it's actually better that I'm in prison because the gospel is going out. And so Paul in Philippians 2 says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, Complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. In other words, Paul's joy had nothing to do with whether he was in prison or not. It had to do with, rather God's, with whether or not God's people were being God's people. That's what he cared about. That God's people were keeping the faith. They were loving one another. That they were being united in heart and soul and in service to their God. And his imprisonment didn't stop that. In fact, it helped. So this is a key. This is key to understand about Christian joy. And it's all over the Bible. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, said this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So think about it. Paul, uh, Jesus... Is not saying, he's not saying rejoice in spite of your persecutions. That's not what he's saying. He's saying rejoice because of your persecutions. Rejoice because of your sufferings. Not in spite of them, not anyways, but because. Why? Because suffering for the Lord will be rewarded. Because if, because if people are despising you and persecuting you for the cause of Christ, rejoice and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. In fact, it will be happier for you in the end that you suffer for Christ and endure for his name's sake than if you had never suffered at all. Only if you believe that can you actually rejoice in your sufferings. So you see then that being able to rejoice in your sufferings, it's not natural. It's supernatural. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> Who is calling a pastor on Sunday morning? <laughs> Bless their hearts. Okay. <clears throat> if they knew just what happened, they'd have some joy in their spirit. Let me tell you. All right. So, fruit of the Spirit, joy, comic relief, all right. So, joy is supernatural. You can't orchestrate things like that. It's supernatural, okay? Joy is supernatural. And so, and so hear me now. There should be no such thing as an ultimately cynical or pessimistic Christian. And that's very difficult in a day like today uh, because cynicism is just it's the spirit of the age. You know, you're always, you're always squinting your eyes at other people. Squinting your eyes. Always, always judging, always condemning. But we shouldn't be like that. Why? Because we have hope. <laughs> we have hope that extends beyond the grave. So, love, joy. The next fruit of the Spirit is this. It's peace. It's peace. Paul, the Bible teaches that we have three kinds of peace. So, there's three kinds of peace that we have uh, that comes from God. The first type of peace is peace with God. Peace with God. So Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, uh, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this, by far, is the most important type of peace that God gives us. Our greatest problem, and the greatest problem with everybody in the world... It's not government, it's not 
uh, relational problems. It's not anything. The greatest problem that people have is that we are all at enmity with God. That is, all of us, by nature and by choice, have a heart that bends toward ourselves, away from God. We don't want God sticking his nose in our business. We want to be able to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And who is God to tell me otherwise? Well, I'll tell you, he made you. When you were being knit together in your mother's womb, God was knitting you together. Every, the fact that you woke up this morning and lots of people all over the world this morning did not wake up. It's because God wanted you to wake up. And he has given us life and breath and everything. And so we're wondering why, why God wants to stick his nose in our business. And God is wondering why you just live your whole life as if your whole life's not his business. You see? We're all, and this is true of everybody, me, everybody apart from God. We have all alienated ourselves from God by saying to God implicitly or explicitly, not thy will be done, but my will be done. And because of that, the Bible says that the wages of sin, of our disposition of our heart, is death. And therefore, our greatest need is forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation, peace with God. And God has given us peace through Jesus Christ. This is the most important peace that we can have with God. The second type of peace that the Bible speaks about, that God gives us, is peace of mind. Maybe some of you in this morning, here this morning, you need some peace of mind. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Again, this is supernatural. What can give somebody peace in the midst of their deepest and darkest circumstances? Only God and only His Spirit. Paul teaches us when we're... And by the way, he's saying when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, that's a command. Anxiety is a sin. Worry is a sin. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. But what? But, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Christian prayer is the only kind of prayer that can give you this kind of peace. Because Christians are the, pretty much the only ones who believe that there is an all-powerful, omnipotent God who cares about you. And so when you believe and you know that through Christ you have peace with God, and that because you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God praying for you, and because when God looks at you, because you're in Christ, he, he sees his own son when he looks at you. And so when you cry to God, you know that all the forces of heaven will be bent for your good. That no weapon formed against you shall prosper. That all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to your purpose. And when you believe that about the God that you're praying to, you can have peace. Through Christ, we have an all-powerful, omnipotent God who is for us. And when we pray to that God, we can have peace. And the third type of peace that the Bible talks about, that God gives us, is peace in our relationships. Peace in our relationships. Romans 14, 19. Paul says, let us pursue what makes for peace. 
and for mutual upbuilding. The Spirit of God brings the fruit of peace to our relationships. How? Well, how is peace in our relationships broken? It's actually pretty simple when you think about it. Our relationships become less than peaceful when we are when we believe that we're supposed to get something from someone else that we're not getting. That's when that's when your relationships were broken. I'm not getting uh, the attention I need. I'm not getting the respect I need. I'm not getting the affection I need. I'm not getting this. I'm not getting that. And those things might not even necessarily be bad, but it causes tension in our life when we're trying to squeeze out of the other person what we feel like we deserve. Why? Because we're trying to, we're, we're, we're treating the relationship, uh, trying to get what we want out of the relationship. And when you do that, you're never going to have peace. But what has God done? What has God done? God has come. And God has given us a peace of mind. He's given us peace of heart. God has come and he has reconciled us and given us peace with God. And therefore now God meets all of our needs. God has came and didn't demand from us, but God served us so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And because God has come into our lives by the power of the Spirit, we now seek like Jesus Christ not to be served, but to serve in our relationships. And to give our life for others. And when you approach your relationship that way, you're no longer trying to squeeze out of other people what you want from them. But you are getting your needs met from God so that you can approach the relationship as a giver and not a receiver. And when you approach your relationship that way, let me tell you something. You'll experience a lot more peace. Don't you know that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? We can't change other people, but God can change us. And God oftentimes will change other people through our loving patience with others. And the peace that we have from God, we must extend it out to others in our relationships. So love, joy, peace. The next is patience. The next is patience. The Spirit, the Spirit works patience in us. Anybody in here impatient? We are, we, God makes us patient by His Spirit because God is patient. Romans 2, verses 3 and 4. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's patience, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The, a large number of the time that the, that the New Testament uses the word patience is referring to God's patience. That is, think about the number of times every day God is sinned against. Think about it. Think about the number of times every day that God is ignored as if he doesn't exist. You ever been treated like you don't exist? Think about how many times God is actively disdained and disavowed and blasphemed in the world. You know what God does? He makes the sun rise every morning. The same people who's going to blaspheme him that day, he woke them up. He put food on their table. He gave them friends, family, relationships. God is patient. 
He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger. That doesn't mean he's not angry at sin. Believe me, he is. But God's patience tarries. Why? The Bible says so that, so that people might come to repentance. But it's a, it would be a, the worst mistake you can make to, to presume upon God's patience and think because he's patient with you, he'll be patient forever. The Bible is very clear that he's patient He's patient, he's patient, waiting for people to turn to him. But if you never turn to him, he will punish sin. The time of his patience will be up. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because God is patient, God commands us to be patient. Can you imagine standing before God one day and we're, we're, we're characteristically impatient with other people and God looks at you and says, my goodness, I was so, impa- I was so patient toward you. Why were you so impatient toward others? What are you going to tell them? Be speechless. We all will. Be speechless. God is so patient with us. So we must be patient with others. We must learn to be patient with others. We must cry out to God that he by his spirit would teach us patience. Christians should not be people who are flying off the handle who are regularly outbursting, saying things that they regret. People around whom others have to walk on eggshells around. This ought not be. By the power of the Spirit of God, working in our hearts and in our lives, God will work patience in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Kindness. God's kindness in the Bible, in the New Testament, is often associated with his patience or mercy or his salvation. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 5, Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. When that verse there, it's actually... (laughs) In verse 4, it's actually the word goodness that is, is the same word that is translated kindness in, this, in, this, um, in, in Galatians 5. So you see the ideas of kindness and goodness are closely related. But God's, good, but God's kindness is closely is, is related to God's patience. His goodness, his, his kindness in saving us. I mean, what kinder thing can you do than give your own son for people who don't deserve it? But that is God's kindness. And this is, and this is how God is kind to us. As I said earlier in Matthew 5, 44, Jesus said, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Because God is kind 
we are to be kind to others. And so, the Christians, we should be the kindest people in our dealings, in our interactions, when we go to the store, when someone's really slow driving in front of us, when, the, when, when there's 800 people in Walmart and there's one line open. <laughs> we should be kind to people. Because let me tell you, kindness is getting more and more foreign to this world. That means the more kind you are, the more it's going to stand out. We should be kind people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Goodness. Again, it's, it's very similar to the word kindness here. It, just, it, it means being good. But of course, the idea of goodness is closely associated with that of moral integrity. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 and 11, Paul says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good. There it is, good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no works, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So what Paul is saying is that being good is equivalent to walking in the light. And the opposite of being good then is walking in darkness. That is that, that is that the Spirit of God works in us lives of goodness, lives of moral integrity. Paul says in verse 9 there on the screen, it says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. What, what is the fruit of light? Well, it's just another way of saying the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit that God works in our lives, that we are to be lives of we are to be people of moral integrity and of character. That we are to reflect the very goodness of God in our behavior. And it's worked in our lives by the Spirit. The next uh, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Faithfulness. Now this word is it's interesting because it can be translated simply faith or it could be translated faithfulness. And in fact, by far the most uh, this word is much more commonly translated faith as opposed to faithfulness. And the context only makes that clear. But it's pretty clear here that Paul is referring that the, fruit, the Spirit works the characteristic of faithfulness in our lives. He uses it in this way in Titus chapter 2. Paul says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. That could be translated faithfulness, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. So if you look at that verse, it's clear what Paul is telling bondservants that as opposed to pilfering, that is stealing, that is being unfaithful to your master, you are to show good faith, or we could say faithfulness. That is, you are to be consistent. You are to show faith to the one to whom you belong. You are to be trusted. Worthy. That is, we as Christians are to be reliable. We are to be dependable. We are to be people of integrity. We are to be people who keep their word and their promises, who can be relied on not to cheat. Why? Because God is faithful. Therefore, we are to be faithful. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the, the Israelites went after foreign gods, went after false gods 
gods that didn't save them. They, were, they turned their back on the God of Israel. And over and over again, God characterizes their, their idolatry as adultery. That is, them running after false gods was spiritual unfaithfulness. Spiritual unfaithfulness. And yet God, throughout the whole history of the Bible, he kept his promise to Abraham. So throughout a span of thousands of years, despite the unfaithfulness of his people, God never lost his faithfulness. He kept his promise, and he's keeping his promise today. So as Christians, we must ask ourselves, are we reliable? Are we dependable? Do we keep our promises? Do we keep our promises to our children, our spouses, our relatives, others? Do we cheat? Do we cut corners? We are to be faithful. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit uh, here is gentleness. The Spirit works gentleness in our lives. This is so important today. God doesn't just care about what you do, but he also cares about how you do it. God doesn't just care about what you say. He also cares about how you say it. In Galatians 6, 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. There may be things that need to be said, but it's not enough just to spout them off with rage and anger and just say, Well, it's true. Well, it may be true, but guess what? God is watching. Just because something's true doesn't mean you have to say it. Just because something's true doesn't mean you have to say it the way you say it. We all must speak with fear. That's what that verse in Galatians 6, 1, where it says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. When someone is... When someone is legitimately in sin and we try to correct them, we are to correct them with gentleness and with fear because it's only by the grace of God you're not caught in that same sin. And so we are to be a gentle people. You know, some people think it's a spiritual gift calling out other people. Oh, oh, I got the gift of discernment. I got everybody figured out. And you tell everyone about it except the person you're talking about. And this is especially true, let me tell you, it's especially true in a social media age where people can hide behind the internet. Say things they would never say in ways they would never say about people. We are to be gentle. We are to be gentle. Now, of course, there are some things... There are some things that no matter how gentle you say them, people aren't going to receive them. They're going to count it as offensive, and, and I get that. But, but we should not let the... If we, if we offend people as Christians, it needs to be that the truth of Christ and the truth of the Bible is offending them, but not the way in which we say it. 
The truth of the gospel is already offensive enough. We don't have to add to it by being a jerk. We should speak the truth in love with gentleness and humility and tears and urgency. So the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. We should be a gentle people. And finally, there's self-control. Self-control. This is the last fruit of the Spirit Paul mentions here, and it's self-control. It's actually a very uncommon word in the Bible. It just occurs a few times, but the meaning is obvious enough. And it ties in with what everything else Paul has been saying here. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That is that you have a self. Hear me now. You have a self that's out of control. That's what the Bible teaches. That all of us, because of our sin nature, are born with illicit desires. That is, desires that feel natural because we have a sin nature. But it's desires that in the end lead to death. And the Bible calls us, Jesus said, whoever must follow me will take up his cross. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In other words, in this age, there is a, there is a huge measure of self-denial in what it means to follow Christ. Because we understand that we have desires that, uh, are don't, that don't please God that will lead to destruction in this life and in the life to come. And so God calls us to exercise Self-control. And it's a a spirit-wrought grace. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath is coming. We have, you see what he says? There are earthly things in us. And every day we have a decision to face whether we're going to give in to the earthly things or whether by the Spirit we're going to put them to death. And it is a spiritual battle. In Romans 8.13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We, put, we make war on our sin. We put it to death. We don't just let it go unchecked. But because the Spirit of God lives inside of us, He gives us power to do what we couldn't before, and that is to fight sin. Before we're a Christian, you don't care about your sin. You just do what you want to do. But when you become a Christian, you realize that there is a war raging inside your own body, and for the first time, you are empowered by God to fight it. And all these things, Paul says, are fruit of the Spirit in our lives. I want you to think about all these fruit for a minute. Who in this room doesn't want to be a more loving person? Doesn't want to be a more joyful person? Doesn't want to be a more peaceful person? A kinder person? A better person? A more faithful person? A more gentle person? Person, a more self-controlled person. Who doesn't want to be those things? All those things are self-evidently good. And they're, and they're things that, by the way, they don't come natural, as we've said. It's not natural to be joyful. It's, not, it's certainly not natural to be patient. That's hard. 
It's supernatural. To be good, to be faithful, to be gentle, to be self-controlled. That's not natural. It's supernatural. But they're worked in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we surrender ourselves to God, as we bow all that we are before all that he is and say, Lord, just take me and rule in me and reign in my life. And so the fruit of the Spirit are things that God works in us. And so we, as Christians, it is just, it's incumbent on us from time to time to ask ourselves, especially if we've been Christians for a long time, to ask ourselves, are you more loving now than you were five years ago? Ten years ago? Are you more joyful now than you were five years ago, ten years ago? Or are you more grim, cynical, and pessimistic? Are you more patient than you were five years ago? Ten years ago? Fifteen years ago? Are you kind and good more so than you were? Are you more faithful, more dependable, more trustworthy, more reliable than you were before? Are you more self-controlled than you were 5, 10, 15 years ago? These things are fruit of the Spirit. And if we're not, and if we're not producing these fruit in our spirit, if we're not producing the fruit by the power of the Spirit of God, Either the tree's sick or you're a wrong kind of tree. There's really only two explanations. Either, you're, either the tree's sick or you're the wrong kind of tree. And so this is, a, this is an invitation and a call to all of us to just examine ourselves and say, is God working these things in my life? And if God is not working these things in my life, why not? What is it? Is there some kind of sin in my life that I know that's there, but I've left unaddressed? That is, that I'm a Christian, but it's just, it's killing my spiritual life. I can have no intimacy with God because I've never dealt with it. Or it might be because you're a different kind of tree. You, have, you haven't been born again by the Spirit of God yet. You haven't truly set your trust and faith and hope in Christ and been changed yet. And if that's you, I pray and plead that you would look to Jesus Christ who could work these beautiful things in your life. And Paul closes this fruit of the Spirit by saying, against such things there is no law. That is, these things are so self-evidently good that they can never be forbidden. And we intuitively know, even people who aren't Christians intuitively know that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control are good, righteous things. But we have no power to be them apart from the Spirit of God. So Paul calls us here to bear new fruit, and lastly, and and quickly, kill the old root. Kill the old root. In verse 24, Paul says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is, so look, look at that verse. We who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That is, if we belong to Christ, our old self is dead. That's what the Bible says. That's why we can't live like we used to live. Not because we're trying harder, but because literally we, the old self has died with Christ on the cross. It was crucified 
We crucify our passions, our sinful passions, our sinful desires. We kill them. We kill our old way of living and thinking. It's dead to us and we are dead to it. So, and think, look at the way Paul puts it. He doesn't say we who belong to Christ Jesus should crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. It says we who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, if you are a Christian, then, God is, then Paul is not, not calling you, in a sense, essence, to try harder. He's saying you need to just be who God has already made you. Your old self is already dead. So to try to live like your old self is just trying to be like a zombie, the living dead. It says, don't do it. It's, it's foolishness. You, if you're in Christ, you have already died. So live out your new life in Christ by the power of the Spirit. And so I close with this appeal this morning. The Bible says that as long as we live in these earthly bodies, until Christ comes or until we die, we, have, we wage a battle in our heart and in our soul. And I pray for everyone in here who truly belongs to Christ, who, who has the Spirit of God dwelling in you. I pray that every day, more and more, you will find victory in this battle. But also, there may be some in here who, for you, there's no battle there's no battle because you've never waged war on your sin. You see, you never understand how strong of a grip sin has on your life until you try to fight it. Until you try to fight it, you never realize how hard it is that it won't let you go. And the key and the point is this. You can't escape it apart from the power of God in your life. By faith in Christ today, looking to Christ who has died for our sins. He, he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross so that God could forgive us. And he rose from the dead on the third day, conquering the penalty for sin so that new life can be birthed in us. And so that one day we will be raised from the dead and live with Christ forever. And if you, if you turn from your sin... And look to him in faith and call on Jesus Christ and say, God, have mercy on me through, for Christ's sake. I believe in Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he died for me, that he rose from the dead. And I surrender my will to his, my life to him. You call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, and you will be saved. The Spirit of God will then begin to change you. From the inside out. And it may be slow and it may be painful, but it will be glorious. Because our destiny is a, another world, another kingdom, another body. Where there's no pain or crying or tears anymore.